Thank you, Luke. So used to praying, we just prayed. So what do you what do you think of the Old Testament? When you read the Old Testament, are you drawn to it? Or are you scared of it? And, and, and when you read it, how ought we to read it? I mean, I think about, I think about some of the commands that we, you know, to stone the adulterer. Should we still do that? Stone the one who's working on the Sabbath? You know, should we be sacrificing animals? Tithing? Should we be tithing? Is that required? New Testament Christian? I mean, what rules do we obey? Do we obey all the rules in the Old Testament? Do we obey some of the rules, or do we obey none of the rules? It's a really deep and profound passage that we have here. Very precarious to teach. As I was going through it this week, I thought, there is more in here than I can explain well. And uh, it kind of reminded me one time I was floating out the... um, I don't know if I was at Emerald Isle or Wrightsville, but I was just floating on my back. I, I love floating out in the ocean and just looking at the sky, looking out at the ocean and resting. And I was probably out there 10, 15 minutes, and all of a sudden the wind was blowing. It was a little bit, a little bit um, choppy out there. And all of a sudden I look up and I realize, whoa, the beach is like a couple hundred yards away. And people were kind of small on the beach. And I knew I was kind of far out there. And all of a sudden it hits you, I'm in some deep water right now and you get nervous and you start thinking I don't know what's underneath me I want to start moving in a little bit and and I feel like I want to get this over real fast because I feel like I'm in some deep water right now Um, but I think it's important water to swim in Uh, it was John Newton who said these words he said um, ignorance over the nature and the design of the Old Testament law is at the bottom of most of our religious mistakes. We need to understand this Old Testament law. The Christian needs to understand it. And so I just want to do two things. I want to kind of show you, I think, how Jesus understood the Old Testament law. How did Jesus see the Old Testament? And then, and then likewise, how should we be reading the Old Testament? How should we be looking at these commands in the Old Testament? Should we ignore them? Should we follow them? I mean, what do we do with them? A lot of people read the Old Testament, and I don't even read the Old Testament. We, we just move on to the New Testament. So, so that's what we're going to do today. How did Jesus understand it, and correspondingly, how do we understand it? Now, uh, let me remind you of where we are. We're back in the Sermon on the Mount. So we had that short series at the beginning of this year. And uh, if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in verse 1, it says that he went up on the mountain, he sat down, and he began to teach. Okay, so Jesus has come He's declared a kingdom. He's called people to enter it by faith. And and now Jesus is beginning to teach about the nature of this kingdom. And that's why we went right through all those eight Beatitudes. This is the etiquette of the kingdom. This is the righteousness that's required in the kingdom. There is a serious righteousness that Jesus calls for us to live by in this kingdom. And then when we do live by this righteousness, then in 13 to 16, you saw how we're going to be salt and light. In other words, the influence of our righteousness is going to have a preserving and a promoting effect in our culture. So Jesus is explaining this to us. Now, he's calling the people to himself. He's saying there's a new kingdom. There's a new righteousness. You follow my teaching. Now, this wasn't lost in the Pharisees. The Pharisees are thinking, new kingdom, new teaching, 
New teacher, he's going up to the mountain, just like Moses, right? That's what Matthew's doing. Matthew's trying to get you to see Jesus as a greater Moses. Moses went up to the mountain to receive a law from God. Jesus goes to the mountain to give a law as God. So they're saying, whoa, what do we do with the Old Testament? You know, if you think back in the second chapter of Matthew, the people were saying, hey, he's got a new teaching, he's got new authority. And they're beginning to wonder, well, we're called to live righteously, Jesus is giving us a new teaching. What do we do with the old teaching? What do we do with Moses? Do we follow him? Do we ignore him? What do we do with him? That was their struggle. And Jesus wants to make clear to us his position on it. So if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20, just four verses, but there'll be plenty there. Matthew 5, we read Jesus' words saying, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Boy, this is pretty important stuff here. First thing Jesus wants to do is make sure we don't leave with a negative connotation of the word. You see what he says right at the beginning? He says, I I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, listen, when you see law, prophets, when you think of law, it's, it's really the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. When you see prophets, you tend to think the rest of the scriptures are being referred to. When you see law and prophets together in the same verse, it generally refers to the whole Old Testament. So when Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, he's saying, I'm not coming to abolish all that was written from God through men in the Old Testament. Now, he hasn't come to abolish them. The word abolish means to dismantle like you would an old barn. You'd take it apart and you'd do away with it. Jesus is saying, I'm not coming to abolish the law of the prophets. I'm not coming to abolish the words of God at all. In fact, Jesus held the words of God to be supreme, authoritative, glorious, to be followed. I mean, look what he says in the very next verse. He says, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away. Not a jot or an iota, not a dot will pass away. Now now notice he says, for truly I say to you. This is kind of Jesus' way. He says this over a dozen times in Matthew, when he wants to get our attention, that he's speaking with this supreme legislative authority, he says, for I say to you, he doesn't reference rabbis, he doesn't reference other authors, he doesn't reference other prophets, he just references himself. He says, I say to you. In other words, Jesus sees this law of God, the words of God, as supreme, as expressing God's glory, as revealing God's holiness as showing the nature of man, as showing the gloriousness of sin. So Jesus is trying to correct, make no mistake, Jesus has a supremely high view of this Old Testament. We ought to as well. He held it in very high regard. In fact, he said it's permanently enduring like the earth you're standing on right now. So it is certain and it is sure. In fact, he's not looking to abolish it. He's looking to fulfill it. Look what he says in the second half of that verse. He says, no, I haven't come to abolish it, but to fulfill them. 
Now, what does it mean to fulfill? This is an important word in Matthew. You've seen it used half a dozen times in the first four chapters of Matthew. To fulfill means to bring to completion, to establish, to unfold. When Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he is saying that I have come to bring them to their perfection. Now, I want to explain this a little bit. To fulfill the law and the prophets. Let me give you three ways to look at this. First, I think he's saying, I've come to fulfill all the promises that God has made. You know, if you look through the Old Testament, you will just see it littered with promises. Promises particularly, not just of God's presence and power and goodness and mercy, but promise that he's going to bring one, a Messiah, who's going to come and deliver. Who's going to live a life, who's going to suffer, who's going to die, and who's going to raise again, who's going to receive a kingdom, and he'll be Lord over a people. These are the promises given to us that this Messiah would bring. And Jesus, of course, is that Messiah. The promises, even down to the the place of his birth, there were four Bethlehems at the time of his birth. Epaphatha was the fourth, and that's where he was born. The nature of his death is specified and promised that he would die, read Psalm 22, you'll see the nature of his death, that was fulfilled. All these promises of God, in fact, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, he says, for no matter how many promises God has made, in other words, there could be thousands, no matter how many he's made, they are a yes in Christ. So Jesus has come to fulfill these promises of God. You see, the same thing between Philip and Nathaniel. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about from the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus has come to fulfill all those promises. But, but secondly, not just the promises of God, Jesus has come to fulfill the demands of God. You know when you read the Old Testament, God has laid out these moral demands upon us to live righteously and faithfully before God. Read Psalm 24. Who can ascend the hill of God? Only he who has a pure heart and a clean hand. Can any of us do that? Really? In in fullness? God has moral demands upon people that he has created. And he has the right to make these demands because he has created us. And Jesus has come to fulfill. No man has fulfilled every moral demand that the Father has given. But Jesus has. Not just moral demands. How about the sacrificial demands? That God has stated that to appeal and to appear before God There has to be a perfect sacrifice due to our sin, due to his holiness. And so we required this sacrifice of a lamb, a perfect lamb, blood would be shed, brought into the Holy of Holies to appeal to God for mercy. Jesus has come to fulfill that by being the sacrifice. That's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus, what did he say? The first thing, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The one we were looking for. We know the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. We needed the one to come that was perfect. Jesus fulfilled that demand of God. But not just fulfilling the promises of God and the demands of God, but also the intentions of God. When you read through God's word, there's much in the Old Testament that is speaking to a perfect time. A a time where we'll be with God forever. And God puts certain allusions and pictures in the Old Testament that we're going to be fulfilled in Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the reality. These Old Testament examples and stories and actions are shadows that were pointing to something better that was coming. See this in Hebrews chapter 10, 
we read, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. This is very important because people elevated the law. Some elevated the law so high, almost above God. And the law was a shadow. Let me give you some examples of this. So the temple, God called Moses and ultimately David to build this temple. First a tabernacle, then a temple. But the temple was a place where man would meet with God, but the temple was never the end. The temple was pointing to a time where we could be with God personally, man and God. That's why Jesus said, I'm the temple, that, that I'll die, but I'll be raised up. He was speaking to the temple. He's the new temple. Or the Sabbath. We're called to honor the Sabbath in the Old Testament. The Sabbath was a day of the week whereby we would rest and enjoy God and enjoy all that God has done. But the Sabbath was only a shadow. It wasn't just one day a week. Jesus later speaks about his rest that he seeks to give us. Paul says, don't let anybody tell you when the Sabbath is. Jesus is the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath day, one day a week, was preparing us to enter into the rest of God in Christ every day of the week. The, The Sabbath was only a shadow. The reality is Christ. Same thing with the sacrifices, as as I shared. The lamb was a shadow. The the, the lamb helped us understand that blood needed to be shed for the forgiveness of sins, but Christ is the reality. So he's come to fulfill the intentions of God. In fact, you you can really see it beautifully illustrated in Mark 9, at the transfiguration. You remember that story? In Mark 9, Jesus goes up the mountain again. Do you see how many times Matthew records And the gospel writers record, he's going up a mountain. He goes up the mountain, and his his body, he becomes dazzling white. Who is with Jesus? Two Old Testament saints. Moses, the writer of the law, and Elijah, the father of the prophets. What was that about? All the law and all the prophets find their perfect fulfillment in the Son Christ. It's a profound scene. Can you imagine that's why Peter wanted to build the booths. We look at him and think he's an idiot for saying, what are you wanting to build? Who wants this to stop? The law and the prophets come down and find their perfect fulfillment in Christ. So what's this mean for us? Well, it means an awful lot. It means an incredible amount that in Jesus, everything that God intended to do, everything he intended to say, everything he intended to promise and to bring to completion is in Christ. That, that in Jesus, there's a seismic shift in redemptive history. That, that no longer are we going to look at the Old Testament law as we once looked. Now we're going to look to Jesus, who's the Lord of the law. And Jesus now defines and explains and adapts the law. We look to Christ to understand all of the law. I mean, we see that he sets some things aside, do we not? In Mark chapter 7, when he says... That, that um, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of a man, thus declaring all foods clean. You couldn't eat all foods before. Now you can. The sacrificial system. Are we offering lambs out back? No, because the perfect one has come. The substance has come. And you think about the Sabbath, or you think about um, the, the, um, yeah, the celebration of Sabbath. We don't celebrate the Sabbath anymore. We find our rest in Christ. So Jesus, as Lord of the law, is now the one through whom we understand the Old Testament. 
And I think we are on good grounds for this. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus sets himself up as kind of what we call a hermeneutic or a lens through which to understand the Old Testament. In Luke 24, we read these words. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and to enter into his glory? You remember the scene. Two disciples walking. It was after the crucifixion. They're forlorn that Jesus has died. They don't know what they're going to do. You can imagine the leader's been taken out of the way. Where do we go? What do we do? Jesus is walking down along with them. They don't recognize him. And when Jesus tends, when Jesus decides to reveal himself, he says this. This is when he says, you foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer and enter his glory? Here's what it says. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. It's all about him. I mean, all, all the prophets, the law, it's all ultimately revealing the glory of Christ. That he's fulfilled all things for us. It's a profound idea that when Jesus looks at the law as just speaking about him. So what do we do? That's the way Jesus viewed the law, held it in supreme authority because it advanced who he is and what he was doing. That's how Jesus saw the law, as, boom, landing on him. And now he carries the law forth. What do we do? How do we as Christians then interpret the law? Well, this is where it gets a little dicey. So here's what I like to say. I want to make it analogous to a marital conflict. So when a couple comes in and, and they have a marital conflict, I always say, okay, there's going to be three views here, right? There's going to be his view, and there's going to be her view, and then there's going to be the right view, right? It's the right view. We're going to try to steer between two errors that the church tends to fall into when they look at the Old Testament, and then by God's grace, I, I hope to to steer a path down the middle. I know that I may answer two or three of your questions. I may raise 32 more. I I understand that. I want to say with humility that I'm going to attempt to do this, but this is kind of difficult sledding. So if you do have questions, and if I raise up questions that I don't answer, just come forward and ask. It's no problem. I may not have an answer for you, but I can uh, at least take your question and uh, try to do some research if I don't know the answer. Um, Okay, so the first error is this, and this has always troubled the church. The Christian thinks, hey, we're under grace, we've been saved by the gospel, and we don't need the Old Testament. It's obsolete, it's antiquated, I don't need to read it anymore. And as soon as the preacher begins to call you to live in light of holiness and and follow the words of God, then he tends to earn the the, uh, charge of being legalistic or judgmental. And so we tend to just want to distance ourselves from the law. Uh, All the law, the word of God, the Old Testament. No, 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 we don't need that anymore. We're under grace. We're living free now. We're no longer under the law. But look at what he says in verse 19. He seems to speak against this. He says, whoever relaxes, or that, that word means to loose or to break or to annul or to dismiss. Whoever relaxes, one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, gee, he doesn't seem, so those of us who want to relax the laws and the words of God, it seems to say, well, you may not be excluded from the kingdom, but you're going to be called least in the kingdom. 
But then it's a troubling verse, I think you'd agree, because it seems to drag us back to the Old Testament. It seems to drag us back to before Christ came. That if, if you even relax the least of the commandments, even the least of it, you're going to be called least. But if you do it, then you're going to be called great. So it almost promotes this thing that I'm working against. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, I, I'd submit to you that I don't think he's calling us to try to live according to the Old Testament anymore or to live according to the law. I don't think he's doing that. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, it would deny that he's brought a new era. He's brought a new Messianic age where he is the Lord of the law. Number two, I think it would work against verse 20, where verse 20 he's going to kind of castigate the people who try to live according to the law. Not only that, we already know that Jesus set aside issues like you know, the temple sacrifice and temple worship and sacrificing animals. and A lot of those Old Testament laws he's already done away with in himself. So I think what Jesus is saying here is he's speaking, number one, to our attitude on God's word, but he's also speaking to us obeying the commands of the Old Testament in light of how Jesus has interpreted them and practiced them. So, so for example, we're going to see over the next six weeks, starting in verse 21, Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I say to you, don't harbor anger in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, any man who lusts after a woman has already committed adultery. So he's giving us an understanding of the Old Testament law through him and his teaching. So I think we're called to honor those commands as we understand them through Christ, whereas we don't honor the commands that Jesus has set aside. So this is important for the Christian here. For for the Christian, a lot of us think, well, with the gospel, now there's a a lowering value of me pursuing holiness. Because I'm not under the law, I can live freely by the power of the gospel. And that's led many Christians to live very unholy lives. I mean, I'm a Christian, but I can sleep with my girlfriend. I'm a Christian, but I can kind of cheat on my taxes. The government's going to waste it anyways. We, We use the gospel often as a means to deny the demand for holiness. There's a funny example. Mickey Cohen, most of us don't know it because uh, he's died, he's been dead for a long time, but he was a gangster in Chicago in the mid-20th century. And a uh, corrupt, very corrupt man. Uh, but he went to um, a Billy Graham crusade one time and just mesmerized by Billy Graham's preaching. And so he made a profession of faith. And, and, and the, the media were just astounded. And so they came up to him. And they said, well, how's this going to change your life? Because he was a known, corrupt individual. And he said, change my life? He says, he says they, said, well, he could, they said, well, you just profess to be a Christian. He goes, well, there's Christian businessmen, there's Christian doctors. There can be Christian gangsters. I mean, we can have Christian gangsters. He, he didn't even see this anomaly between, no, 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 being a Christian means we pursue holiness through the words of God. I mean, your understanding and your diligence to be concerned with even the least of the commands as Jesus has interpreted them is significant. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said, our peerage in the kingdom, our position in the kingdom, is based on our obedience. There is a call to be holy. I mean, we're going to find that Jesus actually deepens the call. Many of us are like Soren Kierkegaard. He told this analogy about how most of us are like with the Bible. He was a Danish philosopher. He said, we come to God's word like a mouse comes to a piece of cheese on a trap. We just want to get that little best part. 
without anything else coming down on us. God's word is not that way. We're called to pursue holiness. That's the one error to avoid, that we disregard this call to holiness. Jesus, in fact, repeated the Old Testament command to be holy as God is holy. So we don't want to use the gospel. We don't want to use the grace that is ours in Christ as a means of now just living freely, but we're called to live for his glory and for his honor. The other error is this, that you find yourself trying to live back in line with the law. In other words, many of us will feel better about ourselves with God if we obey all the commands. And and, and we are studious and we are diligent and we are meticulous about what we can do and what we can't do. And I think Jesus is confronting that issue. It's the other side of the coin, is it not? He says in verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying is, if you want to live according to this law, you've got to do it better than the Pharisees and the scribes. And by the way, that will be difficult. That will be very difficult. He was 245 commands, 348 prohibitions. They would honor them all. They were meticulous. They were diligent. They would weigh their herbs to make sure that they were tithing it to God. Who here weighs their herbs to then give unto the Lord? I mean, there was an old saying in Jesus' day, if only two men go to heaven, one will be a scribe, one will be a Pharisee. They were respected for their obedience to the law. But he says here, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. That's profound. Jesus is saying, if you think you're going to come and find favor with God through the efforts that you make alone towards righteousness, you don't have a shot. And I think within Christianity, many of us do still tend to fall back to this idea of when I have a series of devotionals during the week, God's going to love me more. Or I sense God's pleasure more when I'm acting according to all the rules that I've been raised with. I, I, think, I think here's two problems that will come out of this. If you try to live with a diligence of rule keeping to secure God's favor, that's important because I've just called you to be holy. But if you're seeking to be holy as a means of finding favor with God, two problems are going to happen. Either you're going to be really good at it and you're a good rule keeper and you're going to become self-righteous, and you're going to become arrogant because you're doing so much better than everybody else is. And you're going to look down on them because they don't try as hard as you do, and they don't do it as well as you do. So it tends towards self-righteousness and arrogance, or if you don't do it well, and you tend to struggle, maybe you've come out of a bad background, you've come to faith in Christ, you've got bad habits that are still really troubling you, and, and, and you can't keep the rules like other people can, then you fall into despair. And you fall into this sense of, I'm distant from God because I don't do it like they do it. And we have all this horizontal analysis going on, and we're not looking to Christ who fulfilled all the law for us. So we want to watch those two errors. It's his way and her way, and they're both the wrong way. So what is the right way? Well, here's what I'd like to propose to you. And if you take notes, I'm just going to give you three ideas to help perhaps guide us through this kind of mess Uh, first, Jesus is calling us. Okay, so Jesus, so let me just bring you back to where we've been. Jesus looks at the law. He sees it as perfect, divine, authoritative, glorious, eternally beautiful, and he's fulfilled it all for us. So how do we look at it? Well, we don't want to fall into all grace 
and, and, and fail at pursuing holiness. And we don't want to fall into obeying the law as if it's still in full operation in this messianic age. We don't want to do that. So what we want to do is this. We want to look at the Old Testament law and we want to consider the Old Testament law because it's going to lead us to a righteousness that does exceed the Pharisees. So first, we want to pursue a greater righteousness by faith. Now, what I mean by this is that when you look at the Old Testament law, and really the scriptures in total, the scriptures are revealing to us the nature of our sin. The scriptures, when you read the scriptures, you can't help but walk away and treat it like a mirror and say, I'm not like that. Now, instead of me trying harder to be like that, see, the law never saved. The law only shows us that we need to be saved. You know, when you read these passages in Scripture and you realize, I come up short, I come up short, I come up short, the law was given to us to be a tutor to lead us to see our need for salvation. The law was given to us to help us see we need another righteousness. I can't muster this righteousness to please this holy, unfathomable God. As Luke prayed at the beginning, I mean, the, maj- the majesty and the glory and the power of God, and we think we're going to put together in 60 or 70 years enough righteousness to impress him? You haven't read your Old Testament lately. You haven't seen his power and authority and glory lately. Because if you have, you realize, I've got nothing to bring except a truckload of sin. And the scriptures show me that. That's why the law is important. It shows us our need. That's why when we're raising our kids, we always want to give them the law and the gospel. The law and the gospel. We wanted to tell them the law, not because we're trying to be legalistic monsters. This is what God requires. You can't do it. That's why he's given us the gospel. The law is for the proud. The gospel is for the brokenhearted. When the law breaks us, then we move towards God. God save us. We need an alien righteousness. We need one to come and deliver us. That's why he fulfilled the law. This is, this is the, the crowning blow to Martin Luther's trouble. Martin Luther was, a, of course, a reformer in the 16th century, 15th century, and, and, and he was deeply troubled by his sin. He saw the holiness of God. He saw his sin, and he, he thought they were irreconcilable. How can we ever bridge that gap? And it was when he came across Romans 1, 16 and 17. Here's what he writes. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says this later in chapter 3. He says, but now righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The same law and the prophets, just like Matthew 5. He says, this righteousness comes from God through faith in Christ to all who believe. So the law is driving us to Christ to find our righteousness and to clothe, our righteous, to clothe, our, clothe ourselves in his righteousness. Same thing in Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be a righteousness for everyone who believes. Do you see what's happening? The law is good. Because it drives us into the cross of Christ where we are made righteous in Christ. This is amazingly helpful for us in life. It keeps us from he loves me, he loves me not. It keeps me from I'm a monster, I'm a saint. I'm a monster, I'm a saint. It keeps us on even keel. You know, Gresham Machen was a um, Presbyterian 
a theologian back in the mid and early part of the 20th century. And um, he uh, was a great author, scholar, and still widely read today. And um, he died on uh, New Year's Day in 1937. <clears throat> but uh, the day before he died, this pastor that he was staying with, he was out preaching, and uh, the pastor prayed for him, and uh, he had this vision of heaven. Now, if you know much about Gresham Machen, he's a staunch Presbyterian, so they tend not to have a lot of visions. And, uh, but he had a vision, and he said this, it was glorious, it was glorious. That's all he said. He was quiet. The next day, he was able to send a telegram to John Murray, another New Testament theologian at Westminster. And here's what he said. This is his last recorded word before he died that day. He said, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. He said, no hope without it. In other words, coming to the one who has fulfilled the law and has, has earned a righteousness for us gives us a total peace with God. We want to pursue holiness, but we don't pursue the law to earn that holiness. So pursue righteousness by faith, not by works. Secondly, I'd remind you that we are called to pursue this greater righteousness through the power of the Spirit. We sang it today in the first song that Charles had us sing. That there is no way you can walk according to the commands of God apart from the power of the Spirit. Think about it for a minute. The law said do not commit murder. Jesus is going to drive it down to do not get angry. So it's internalized. Don't commit adultery. He drives it down. Don't be lustful. I mean, if you think about, don't keep the, he talks about tithing. Tithing, when we get later on in Matthew 6, you're going to want the 10%. I mean, the 10% is going to seem like a good deal. Because Jesus says this, he says, if you have two coats, give one of them away. That's 50. He drives it deeper. He says, hey, Paul says, however you sow, you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. You sow generously, you reap generously. Let each man give as he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. So just throwing out the 10%, I'm good to go on that one, God. Not so. He drives it down into our hearts. This is difficult. And this is why I'm so thankful that God in Ezekiel had promised that he would give his spirit one day to reside within us to help us do the law. Listen to what he writes in Ezekiel 36. He says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In other words, with this advent of Jesus fulfilling the law, with the coming of the Spirit, now the Spirit resides within us, moving us to keep the laws from the heart and not external compliance. So we need the Spirit of God. And thankfully, we're told by Jesus, I love this, He says, if your child asks for a bread, will you give him a stone? Parents, if your child asks for an egg, will you give him a snake? If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask him? When was the last time you asked for God to give you his Spirit that you might obey from a willing heart? Was it this morning? Was it last week? Have you ever? God, give me the Spirit. That I, that, I, that, I want, that I want to follow your ways. and Empower me. That's what he says in Romans 8. The law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Jesus enables us to walk according to his law. And, and, and so that's the second thing. The third pursuit of a greater righteousness is the internalization. In other words, forget the external obedience to the words of God. If you're here at church because you have to be, that is no good. If you give reluctantly, don't bother. I mean, if, if you pray, but, but you don't really want to pray, the external compliance to God's word is, is a mockery to him, and it's really just self-deceiving to you. In other words, God wants us to obey from the heart. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Oh, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That if we're going to look at the words of God and follow it, if we want to pursue that greater righteousness, you have to be concerned about where your devotion is, where your affections are, where your obedience is springing from. If your obedience is springing from a desire just to comply to an external law that's been given to us, then my encouragement to you would be I wouldn't bother. But I would be looking at my heart, and I'd be wondering, am I here because I really want to worship God? And if not, confess, ask for grace. Am I giving because I really do know that he's given me all things? And if there's a little bit of hedging on that, then just confess it, and it knows your heart. But the obedience that produces a greater righteousness has to be birthed out of the heart. So, so that's kind of Jesus and the law and you and the law, all in about 38 minutes. So I want to encourage you, in fact, in this pursuit of holiness from a Scottish pastor, Andrew Bonara. He wrote, he wrote these words. He said, false ideas of holiness are common, not only among those who profess false religions, but among those who profess the true. The love of God to us and our love to him work together for producing holiness. Terror accomplishes no real obedience. Remember that, parents. Terror accomplishes no real obedience or holiness. Suspense brings forth no fruit unto holiness. No gloomy uncertainty as to God's favor can subdue one lust or correct our crookedness of will. But the full and free pardon of the cross uproots sin, withers all of its branches. Only the certainty of love, forgiving love, can do this. Free and warm reception into the divine favor is the strongest of motives in leading a man to seek conformity to him who has thus freely forgiven him all his trespasses. In other words, when you begin to bathe yourself in what God has done for us, in giving Christ who fulfilled the entire law, then holiness in our life begins to proceed out of a heart of devotion, not compliance, not fear, not suspense, but out of love. So let's, I'm going to open us in prayer. Now, when we pray, I would ask you to pray um, loudly so that we can hear one another and kind of experience a little bit of what we will on that day in glory when we all appeal to God for grace and mercy and joy and thanksgiving. Your prayer may be a word of thanks. It may be a confession. But you're thinking of the corporate body here. We as a church are laboring together until we stand before him one day, and we will one day. 
1 Corinthians 1.14, we will be together one day before him. And this is a time for us now to appeal to him for grace that we might find his presence sweet and pleasurable. And then Jack's going to close us in just a few minutes. Father, thank you for the depth of your word, but thank you for the glory of your son and all that he has done for us. Fill our hearts with gratitude that our obedience may be out of deep and passionate joy. I pray in the name of Jesus.